0: You have to realize that sometimes people tell you certain things because they can't see it, but they're not trying to hold you back. They just don't see it and that's okay.
1: Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I hope by this point you've been able to spend some time with family and eat some great food. Well, today you're gonna hear from Crystal Harrell. If there is a lady who had a lot to complain about, a lot of strikes against her, all of the things that could have and should have held her back, Crystal is that woman. But instead of allowing those things to hold her back, instead of continuing in the difficult cycle that she grew up in, she went from government housing to Ivy League, and she did it all by just changing the way that she looks at life. I can't wait for you to hear from my guest, Crystal Harris. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. Hey, Crystal. Thanks for joining me. I'm so glad to be with you today.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. I'm excited. Yeah.
1: I've been excited about this too, just because you have such an amazing story.
0: Thank you. It's it's crazy because I live my story. So I never thought that it would actually be something that someone would care about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you lived your story. And now other people are kind of vicariously living through your story, which is pretty cool. (laughs) We're going to talk about how people are hearing your story, reading your story and how your story is making an impact in just a few minutes. Thank
0: you. Um,
1: So Thanksgiving Day, you hanging out with family today?
0: Yeah, I am. I came, so I live in Connecticut now to finish up my last semester of classes, and I flew down to Atlanta to see my family. All right. Um, Yeah, we all drove down for Thanksgiving to Alabama, and I'm just excited.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a little bit warmer in um, Alabama than Connecticut, right?
0: Definitely. It's freezing in Connecticut. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I guess I just wanted to start off by saying happy Thanksgiving to you. I hope you've had a great day with your family.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. This is my favorite holiday. Yeah,
1: mine too. And for all of the folks out there that are listening after Thanksgiving, I hope you had an awesome day with your family as well. You probably ate too much food and then fell asleep during the first quarter of a football game because you had so much food in your belly. Hey, Crystal, let's talk a little bit about what Thanksgiving traditions look like uh, for you when you were growing up. Um, describe how, th- not, not just Thanksgiving, but describe, uh, you know, how the holidays looked at your house when you were growing up.
0: Oh, wow. So my house was kind of uh, non-traditional, if I could just say that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm one of 10, so my, my parents had 10 children. Wait a second. So going...
1: They had 10 children? Yes. <laughs> wow. Um, yes. <laughs> And you guys had to drive back and forth to school in like the mini bus, right? Like the school bus is basically what your mom and dad had to, what they so, drove.
0: It's strange that you know that because, yeah, we did have a bus.
1: <laughs> of course. Yeah. With that many uh, children, you can't pile them into anything else.
0: I mean, but I thought it was normal for some reason. It was like a small little church van because my parents are yeah. were both ministers. And so we used that bus to go to and from like to and fro from like, you know, church or school or, wherever.
1: (laughs) You got to describe a little bit about how crazy family was growing up. If you had uh, nine siblings running around the house.
0: I would say it's just like the movie, you know, Home Alone.
1: Yeah, of course. It's It's the, the quintessential holiday movie
0: exactly we used to watch that movie so much growing up because my parents found humor in just like how similar their family was to ours yes everything that you saw that movie was exactly how it happens like you have some siblings that kind of gang up and they're always together you have you know someone always sneaking into the bathroom before you to take a shower um we didn't argue a lot because my parents didn't really tolerate that but we did laugh a lot and we did you know make jokes we have a very strange sense of humor yeah. but i don't know i had a lot of fun growing up
1: i can only imagine your parents living in this constant fear of we're at the grocery store and a child didn't make it into the big van. When we drove away, we left a child in the candy aisle of the grocery store.
0: Yes, I got lost once in the grocery store and I don't think my mom realized until maybe like 10 minutes later, (laughs) I was so scared.
1: (laughs) Well, of course, with that many family members or that many siblings, though, they can spread out and cover that whole whole store pretty quickly.
0: This is true. And it's strange because my, my oldest is maybe 42. Um, and my youngest sister is 22. So my mom had, you know, a lot of children. Yeah. Her. She had a first child at 16 and her last one at 38. So she was kind of, you know, like we're all kind of spread out. We're uh-huh. like two to three years apart.
1: I can only I'm I'm trying to get this mental picture right now of what the Thanksgiving table looked like because everybody was this is kind of a survival of the fittest fight for the you know for the food right
0: Yes we had two tables we mm. had to always have like one table like the older kids and the parents like sat there and then we had like a kids table which I think is like traditional oh yeah maybe like in African American like communities like you know they always have like that separate table for the children. And it's like a play table. So we we had enough. I
1: remember being at the kids table and I hated it because I just wanted to hang out with the with the grownups at the grownup table till I got to the grownup table and then learned what you just said, that the kid table is a whole lot more fun than the grownup table. But I didn't know that when I was sitting at the kid table. Dylan, did you have to sit at the kid table when you were having Thanksgiving?
0: Um, I actually I got along with the grown ups pretty well. So oh, I didn't actually sure, that
1: that much. figures. Yeah, for everybody who's listening, Dylan's the producer and of course Dylan gets to sit at the grown up table when he's two years old. It took me oh. until I was about nineteen to be able to sit at the grown up table. I think I was ten sitting at the grown up table. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I got like thirteen. Yeah, thirteen. Yeah, you beat me by
1: a long shot. I'm just saying. Well, so I I wanted, I wanted people to hear how your Thanksgiving and your kind of your family traditions were like, because you have this pretty amazing journey. You grew up in government housing. Um, So would you just describe a little bit about what life was like growing up below the poverty line and in government housing for people that have never stepped foot into government housing?
0: Yeah so it's it's a amazing question Jeff because I never realized that we were living below the poverty level until I got older and I started to notice the signs so I, like I said, I grew up with a lot of love in my household. So my my parents' loves really shielded us from a lot of adversity that you would typically face growing up in these types of communities. And so they were very protective, as you can imagine. My dad was very protective over his girls, yeah, of course, because um, it's seven girls and three boys. And um, oh my goodness, there was like,
1: no time in the bathroom for anybody in your no, house.
0: No, we had two bathrooms. We had to, and my parents had another bathroom. So I guess three bathrooms. So we, yeah, we didn't, <laughs> we did it. <laughs> But it was, it was a lot of fun because like I said, there was so much love, but I remember like certain times where I would ask like my dad for money because we used to have these book fairs um, uh-huh. when I was in elementary school and it was my favorite thing. Like I'm a huge reader. I wasn't really so much in middle school and high school, but definitely not only like, when I was a kid and I would ask my dad for money and it was like, you know, I don't have it or I would get like a dollar or $2. And I don't know if you've ever been to a book fair, but like,
1: those- oh yeah. <laughs> doesn't even buy you a used copy of a Dr. Seuss book at the book fair.
0: No. And so I was always kind of like embarrassed because of that. And like, um, I was always embarrassed because when I couldn't really have friends over, because we, you know, like it was so many of us and I felt like our living conditions, you know, weren't the best. Like I could tell that my house, you know, wasn't as nice as maybe like the girl that I went to school with when her parents were, you know, really successful. And so it was just, like I said, I didn't realize it until I got older and I looked back, but growing up, we, we had fun and we just, you know, use humor to, you know, deal with a lot of the things that we were, you know, experiencing as children growing up in those environments.
1: Tell us what helped you realize that you, so you just described it. I didn't I didn't really know it because there was so much love in my house, but there was a moment where you started to realize, wait a second, I grew up poor and I didn't know I was poor. So tell us what caused you to start realizing challenging uh you know upbringing that you had
0: um i guess like it really hit hard like everything really hit at once when i had to grow up very quickly after my father passed away when i was 11 he had leukemia and um, at the time i didn't know that he had leukemia i didn't find out he had leukemia until i was 22 um so maybe 11 years later so Uh it was just you know um, I didn't really notice what was going on until that moment. And then my mom had to, we left that house and then we moved a total of six times. And at one point we were staying in a basement apartment that was infested. Um, oh, with Rochelle, no. And I was devastated. Like every day I would just come home and I would, um, there's a word for it in psychology. I think it's called disassociation where you kind of like, Mm, like tap out, (laughs) kind of, you don't internalize anything that you're experiencing. So um, I I had to kind of bring all those things up when I was writing my book. And as you can imagine, I cried, it was a very emotional experience. Um, But I realized it then when I was looking around and seeing that these were not standard living conditions. And that even though my mom was working day in and day out, we were barely making it. And I kind of, you know, tried to conceal that as a student because it was embarrassing. Um, and I, I could see the pain in my mom's eyes because she was working so hard now as a single mother. So that's when it really started to hit me around middle school. And that's when I started writing and journaling to kind of help cope with that, you know, what was going
1: on. So you moved about six times after your father passed away. Yes. Before you finished high school. Yes. (laughs) Wow. From 11 to 18, you basically, I'm doing the math, you moved about every year and a half or so.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Because everything was always changing so quickly for my mom. She was, you know, where she could get a job, we moved to Barber County, which is more rural than Ozark. And there we were living in a double ride trailer um, that my grandmother left behind when she passed away. And I guess my mom lost that trailer and we had to move back. And it was just a series of back and forth between Barber County and Ozark.
1: Okay, I got to talk about for this for a few moments. You had to, you lived in a trailer for a little while before you were Mm -hmm. able to move on to another house. Crystal, you and I might as well have been brother and sister growing up. I don't, I didn't have a chance to tell you this, but you're describing a lot of my upbringing. In fact, um, I grew up uh, well below the poverty line. For people that didn't know this, I grew up living in trailer parks, and um, I was. About to say, you know, there's some things that are just very distinctive about the people that live in trailer parks. Um, I want to give you a chance in just a second to describe what this would have been like for you. But for those of you who are listening, and maybe you've never been in a trailer before, or maybe you've never stepped foot into government housing. So everything that you're hearing right now is just completely foreign to you. I'm going to tell you what life is like in a trailer park. In fact, I was thinking about this. Didn't even know that you lived in a double wide, but um, before this episode, uh, when I was preparing for this, uh, this discussion with you, Crystal, I was thinking about my childhood in trailer parks. And I was thinking, I've got some lessons that I learned along the way. So I have this segment during this podcast that I like to call the high five segment. It's like my top five. Things that, uh, you know, have happened to me, life experiences, top five favorites, whatever. Um, and in fact, without even knowing this, uh, that you grew up in a, or that you spent some time in a trailer, I listed the five life lessons that I learned in a trailer park for somebody who's never stepped foot inside a trailer park. And here it is. There is a distinctive class of people. This is number five on my list of lessons that I learned. There's a distinctive class of people in the trailer parks. There's the folks that lived in the double wide. And then there's everybody else that lived in the old beat up, you know, trailer with the wheels still on it. It looks like they just dropped it off last week. Um, And most people don't realize that there's even a a kind of a class system, even in among uh, people that are living way below the poverty line in government housing or trailer parks. I also learned that if a tornado can find a trailer park, it will find a trailer park. You might as well just hang a flashing neon bullseye on the side of a trailer when there's a severe storm or a tornado. I don't know how it works that way, but it's always going to work that way, right? Um, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I, I learned along the way that if your neighbor doesn't have a broken down Chevy truck with the wheels off of it sitting on concrete blocks in the front yard, then you're probably living in the really nice part of the trailer park. Um, there was kind of a free-for-all on the first uh, week of the month. You, you, you may remember what this was like, Crystal, when everybody in the trailer park got their food stamps, everybody went to the grocery store at the same time and everybody had lots of food in their house for about two days. Everybody had food in their house, but here's the number one thing I think that I learned in a trailer park. I learned that wearing hand-me-down clothes that were like 40 years old, hand-me-down clothes made me cool, before everybody else in school was cool because I was wearing bell bottom jeans and wide collared shirts way before they came back in style. So I literally became like the guy who ushered in the style because of the 40 year old hand me downs that I was wearing in the trailer park. I, I, I just really want you to tell people what the social uh, you know, system looked like, what the neighborhood felt like when you were in government housing, when your mom was moving every other year and a half to find a better job to try to feed a lot of mounds. So can you describe that a little bit more for everybody?
0: Yeah, so I remember like just being in government housing from when I was born until after my father passed away at 11 and then we moved into the trailer. Um, and so growing up, there was always a sense of community and because I guess the, the structure of these apartments, they these were brand new government housing apartments. So these were, you know, like oh, they were the nice ones, old, right? Right. I was just like, Oh, like, you know, going back now it looks totally different from what it looked like when I, when me and my family lived there. Um, and so we, even the apartment we lived in, they actually turned it into two apartments now. So it's not, it's no longer a single apartment. Um, and so I remember just like growing up and, Everyone knew everyone, so there was never a time where you can just do something. Yeah, and yeah. Of course, because <laughs> you your
1: know? neighbors know your mama, and whatever you say or do is definitely going to get back to mama.
0: Definitely. So yeah. we, we had to really like be on our p's and q's, and so I guess that kind of like leads me into the second thing: is like neighborhood kids become like your sisters and brothers. So I remember like growing up, even some of the people I grew up with there now we still are you know, in communication because that's just how close-knit every everything in the community was. And I remember, like, that aspect of it because we – my parents didn't really like us in the house a lot. As you can imagine, it yeah. was a lot of us. So, right, whatever they could do to, like, push us out, they were like, go play outside. And I remember hearing, like, go play outside, and that was, like, a signal to go have fun. Right. And it's amazing now because as an adult, I rarely go outside. Now that I'm back in the States, not so much, but when I was in Bali, definitely I yeah. was outside every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the, one of the other things I learned is that like having new clothes and you kind of mentioned this, but like you don't really, there's not really a lot of chances where I remember going to, you know, a department store and getting new clothes, like everything that I had as a child was passed down to me because um, I'm number seven. So there were a lot more above me that, you know, could pass down oh Oh Yeah. Clothes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so yes, you were I thinking, I can't wait for my sister to outgrow that shirt because I want to wear that thing so bad, but I ain't getting a new shirt until my sister outgrows one, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, there were some times when we were wearing the same clothes at once. Yeah. Like, we were all like just, like, sharing clothes. Like, there was, like, a big, uh, what do you call those things, like a hamper? Uh-huh. And it had just, like, all the clothes, all the girls' clothes in this one, girls who were, like, I guess, like, me and my my older sister and my younger sister, like, all of our clothes and there was the closet that was dedicated to clothes and I remember it like looking like a mountain like there were always clothes in there yeah
1: (laughs) um hey crystal so um when you were growing up you were surrounded by other friends in the 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 housing complex that you lived in. I got this mental Mm -hmm. image while you were talking just a second ago for people that have never really stepped foot into government housing. Think about it like Disney world, except for everything is broken down and beat up, but there are 10,000 children all over the place. It's a huge party basically outside the, you know, out, out the front door, like parents say, Hey, here's a soccer ball, go take it to the, to the basketball court and go play. Not that you can, shoot baskets with a soccer ball but the only thing that we own is a soccer ball go play and there's a basketball court across the street right
0: yes yeah (laughs)
1: um
0: yes there were some times where i would we would go play outside i guess like during in the morning and then we are back before the street lights came on like we had to be back before it you know became dark of
1: course you made it out of government housing and I I want to spend a few minutes talking about this because for a lot of people that are way below the poverty line heavily dependent on subsidies and the government really paying the bills many people like that are stuck in a cycle of poverty from generation to generation it would have been easy for you to get stuck in a cycle like that but you didn't what do you think started you on the Path to break that cycle and to get out of government assistance and poverty?
0: Well, this is a powerful question because there are so many things just popping up in my head. Um, and it's kind of a multifaceted question or answer as well, because the first thing is you learn about how to navigate through this world from your parents. They were teaching us that this was the current position, but it didn't always have to be this way. And the reason why I, you know, reverence my father so much in my writings is because he was my first educator. He was the first person telling me that education was my key to freedom, and that it was something that no one could take away from me. And so I used that. And when he passed away, that interest peaked into a passion yeah and i saw my education as my ticket out of poverty and i ran with it yeah. and i never looked back um and you know thankfully you know god allowed that you know that hunch i guess to feel to be true like i felt like this was my ticket and when i pursued that it turned out being my ticket out of poverty and it led me to um to, that's why the subtitle of my book is from the housing to ivy league because i will honestly say and i'm some pushback on this but it's mindset you really have to develop your mind it's interesting because like I said, I didn't really know that we were living in poverty until I got older because I started studying, um, health disparities when I got into university or college. And I realized that I was reading so many articles about people who grew up in similar living conditions and how statistically what their outcomes were. And they, it was designed to keep people in that state. And for me, my, my father and the reason why I reference him so much in my writings is because he was my first educator. He would always tell me that education is something that no one could take away from you. So I believe that if I became educated if I used the knowledge that was around me to design a better life for myself that I would be able to get out of those conditions and I'm, I'm very grateful because that you know that thought was actually true and it actually happened that way and it took me taking action towards that. It took me really honing in on my my academic make um, strengths and figuring out how can I use this tool to get what I want and to me just having a better life and being in a living condition that was not what I was living in back then like to me that was my my dream and I only had one dream as a child and it was to have a house that was big enough for me and all my siblings so we could have our own room that was that was it
1: (laughs) yeah so you're gonna have to have a big house with a lot of bedrooms if you're gonna have you and all of your siblings hanging out together that's a beautiful dream right there um that was <laughs> you your father must have really placed in you a love for not just education but for reading you've referenced several times that you read a lot when you were growing up where did that um passion to read come from
0: my dad of course <laughs> He was he was a huge reader. My dad, my parents never went to college, so I'm a first generation low income student. Uh-huh. And um, but my dad was very very educated because he read so much. I remember going into his room and he had these two big bookshelves that reached the ceiling. They were white and all the rows were filled with books. Books about um, my dad, like I said, was a minister, so they were religion uh, books on religion, books on cars because he was a mechanic as well. He taught himself how to fix all cars. Right. Yes, and he also had books on. I found one of his books in his old library called um, "The Quick and Effective Way of Public Speaking" by Dale Carnegie. I never thought that my dad was into personal development or anything because he never really spoke yeah. a lot. Like he was, he was very quiet, um, very observant. He he just kind of like read, and he was wise because his name was Stein, and I thought that was his real name, but it turns out that was a nickname given to him when he was young because of. It was short for Einstein. I was
1: going to say, let me guess, it's a short, shortened form of Einstein. Yes.
0: Your father was, was a
1: modern-day Einstein.
0: He was a genius, and I I, I talked to my mom about him a lot, and um, she said that he, even though he had all of this intelligence, he never really acted upon it. And to me, I think that's why he pushed us so hard to act on it because I believe that was something that he really wanted for himself was to just use what he knew to design a better life or a different life and um I never know you know I would never know if this is true or not but I just you know just from the way he pushed me to read and he would read to me at night I mean not just me my other siblings as well but I guess I was the one that was kind of like you know really holding on to this because it was fun and I would ask him questions I would ask him to teach me how to count money and it was just like a bonding time and so now when I'm learning it feels like I'm back in that state of just discovering something new. And I just remember what that felt like.
1: Yeah. Um, your father passed at 11 and you've just described your father a couple of times for us. He sounds like he was in a great man. Yes. And I, I can't imagine what this felt like for you. If you had looked up to him like every child looks up to their father, if they're the, if the father's in the home, but in yes. your case, you had a, it sounds like a beautiful relationship with your father. So can you take a couple of minutes and describe for me how this impacted you when your father passed away of leukemia?
0: Yeah. So I, I paint the picture very, like, it's very detailed in my book. And, um, cause it's sometimes easier for me to write about things than to speak. I don't know. Yeah, you're probably the I'm same. I'm
1: like that right? too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I figure. So it's just like, you know, when you're speaking about it and, um, I think I was about 20, 22, when I realized that what happened to me was actually causing a lot of um, adult issues that I was dealing with. But at the time, I just remember, I got up one morning, and the energy in the house was so different, because my house, there was a lot of people that was living in the home that I was living in. So There were there was always noise. There was always people laughing or jumping around or something. And I remember when I woke up this morning, it felt different. And at this time, my dad had went away for it felt like a week, maybe had been two weeks. I don't remember the last conversation I had with my father because it was like he just disappeared. And he was gone, and everyone was telling the children like, you know, he'll he's just sick, he's just sick. And when you tell a child that someone is sick, they think he has the cold. Yeah, he has a cold. Exactly. And so that's what I was thinking. And so when he went away, you know, for I guess a week or maybe two weeks, I was just waiting for him to come back. And I remember when I got up this one morning, I went into the front room because like I said, things felt really different in the house. And I remember walking into the front room and I could see people that I've never met before. And I remember there was a man sitting on the couch and he looked exactly like my dad. And it turned out that it was his brother. (laughs) And they used to get like, and because my family was from Miami, I didn't really grow up seeing my dad's side of family because Mm -hmm. we just, Miami and Ozark is like 10 hours away. Long ways apart, yep. Yes, and so we didn't really, I didn't see my dad's side of the family. And that was my first time meeting his brother. And I remember looking at him and my mom was just sitting on the arm of the couch and she got my attention and she was just like, sit down. And she said, I have something to tell you that may be a little bit difficult to understand at first. And she kind of like paused and she was like, your dad passed away last night. And that was the last thing that I remember her saying because after that, things became muffled. It was like out of a movie when it's like, like that happened, it started happening. And I was just sitting there staring at her mouth trying to comprehend. But I think after like, 10 minutes or 20 minutes, I just got up and ran to the back room and cried. And after that, that's when things really started to change very rapidly and, yeah, it was, it was very traumatic, but it wasn't until I got older when I started studying child development and what happens with childhood trauma when that's not addressed. And it was linked in the, in the literature to anxiety, depression, and panic attacks. Yeah. And after my father passed away, I started having really scary moments where I couldn't breathe and I couldn't stop crying. Uh-huh. And I realized that they were panic attacks and, um, I didn't have my last one until maybe two years ago, maybe.
1: All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, now your mother is a single uh, parent trying to raise, basically, there's still 10 children at home. Are any of your siblings grown by this point?
0: By the time my father passed away, there were only about six of us that my mom was caring for.
1: Yeah. And for everybody else out there who's thinking only six, they're like, how on earth can you make it with six uh, and two parents? And now your mother is a single parent trying to raise six children on our own. You really do have crystal every strike against you. If there's anything that would, would have caused you to continue in the cycle of poverty, this would have been it, right? Single parent home, yeah. lost a father, this, this huge influence on your life. Um, you know, growing up in government housing way below the poverty line, But he did instill in you this love for reading, this desire for education. So tell me, what was it that led you to college when you grew up in a house where mom and dad have never really been to college before?
0: Exactly what you said. My love for education led me to college. I had no idea how I was going to do it because I didn't even know that you had to pay for college.
1: <laughs> you thought surely it's got to be free at this point, right?
0: Right. I, I had no idea about the process. When I say I was completely ignorant to the application process, like, I just didn't know. I didn't know. But I used to get in trouble for asking questions when I was in middle school, when I was in elementary school. And so I did what I was always doing, asking questions. And so I would go to people. Um, I would go to teachers, the guidance counselor. Um, I went to older Um, high school students so like seniors at this Uh point while they were going through the application process I was taking notes since I started like high school like ninth grade I knew this is what I wanted and one of the the older um, students she was a upperclassman and she was a senior at the time and she got the Bill and Melinda Gates Millennium Scholarship and I you know word was uh, circulating around the school that she could go to any school she wanted to in the United States and they would pay for everything and it was this 10 year scholarship by Bill Gates and I knew who Bill Gates was like everybody
1: knows that name
0: (laughs) right so I was like I went to her and I asked how did you get this scholarship and she laid everything out for me so from ninth grade to the first year of my senior year I was doing everything that she told me to do just to get this scholarship Uh and so by the time I got to my my senior year of high school I had a 4.1 GPA and I was like top five in my class and this was because I wanted the scholarship. It wasn't because, you know, I was like trying to, (laughs) like I wanted the scholarship because I wanted to go to school. Um, I wanted to go to college. And that was the process, asking questions, doing whatever it took to get the means to go to school. And also just, just realizing that, I was good enough to be in these places yeah. and that didn't happen instantly. It was over time when I would set bigger goals and then, you know, I would achieve those goals and then that confidence began to to grow because I realized that, you know, I was capable of doing this if I just had the right knowledge.
1: Yeah. So uh, spoiler alert, tell everybody what's, ha- what happens, you know, when you're uh, trying to follow in this uh, <laughs> foot, the footsteps and achieve the or, you know, apply for the, the, melinda and bill gates scholarship
0: well for one sometimes you'll get people who don't really see the vision for your life but that's okay because their your vision wasn't given to them the only person who knows your vision is you and Mm -hmm. that's why it's gifted to you because you're the only one that can bring it forth and so you will have some people who try to tell you um, that it's not possible based on what they know about where you come from or who you are. Um, for me, it was a guidance counselor. And I don't um, I don't look at anyone as being intentionally um, malicious. I think that we are all operating from different levels yeah. of consciousness and awareness. And so you have to realize that sometimes people tell you certain things because they can't see it, but they're not trying to hold you back. They just don't see it. And that's okay. And the year I was applying for the Gates scholarship, it was 25,000 applicants from uh, across the United States. And I thought, how can someone see yeah. someone from this small rural town from this high school? But I saw an example. I saw someone who had had it before. So I thought if she could do it, then maybe I maybe can do I it Maybe I can,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And so I went forth with that, with those intentions of, you know, just seeing if it was possible. And when I got that packet in the mail... And I opened it and the first thing that I saw was a congratulations. I just threw everything up and started crying. And I went to my mom and we were just like thanking God and crying Uh, and yeah, yeah, it, it was possible. And so I would tell anyone that like, as long as you are moving forward with the vision that you have for your life, it's possible. And Les Brown would always tell me that, um, obviously from his YouTube videos, but then when I had the chance to meet him, uh, last year, he actually told me that himself. So it's like, it's possible, but you have to believe that.
1: Yeah. I, I hope people are putting the pieces together of what you just said. You grew up in government housing, way below the poverty line, one of 10 children, lots and lots of competition for everything in the house. Competition's not necessarily bad, but it just means nothing came easy for you when you were growing up. And no. then you lost a father at 11 years old, a very prominent figure in your life, a guy who really did help instilled this love for reading and education for you. And now your mom is a single mother trying to raise all of those children. A lot of people are listening to this. um, So you don't get a chance to see if you're listening to this podcast, that Crystal is a beautiful black woman But because you're an African-American, because you're a woman, you also have other strikes against you. You're a minority. You're generally not the kind of gender or the ethnicity that people think are going to be able to make it into higher education and, you know, have a a good shot. So you apply for one of the most um, prestigious scholarships because of not just the name on it, but as you just said, they pay for everything for a long time. And I cannot help but just wonder what inside of you made you say, okay, look, every possible strike that could be against me is against me, but I'm going for it anyway. Why did you not just throw in the towel? And by the way, as you already know, Crystal, this podcast is entitled Unbeatable because of people (laughs) like you who decided – Even though every odd is against me, I'm going to go for it anyway. So why did you go for the scholarship in the first place, knowing that I am perhaps the least likely to get it?
0: Wow. So that's, that's a really good question because I've never thought about that aspect of it of the internalized decision that I made I saw it as a necessity and even though like you said there were a lot of odds um, I, I was you know there was a lot of things stacked against me and it looked like that it was impossible but there was still this small voice and I believe we all have this I really really believe this and there's a small voice that was just telling me that it was possible it was very, very small, but getting still and understanding the vision that I had for my life and understanding that I didn't have to do it by myself. Like I said, I was asking educators and like I said, some of them weren't willing to help me. Some of them were still operating from um, a, limiting, a limited mindset and mm-hmm. that's okay, but there were others plenty more for that one person who told me that it was impossible there were 10 other people telling me that it was so I just had to make my request known and then people started to come up and willing to help and so I went to educators and I would you know ask them could you read over my essays for my scholarship there was a she was the assistant principal at the time and um, she sat down with me after school I had all my essays typed up and she just helped me piece together a beautiful narrative in my essay so you had to write nine essays for the scholarship and Thankfully, one of my academic strengths is writing, uh-huh. um, test taking. I, I promise you, I will fail you. Do not put a test. <laughs> okay.
1: All right. Good to know.
0: <laughs> I tell you. But, um, I, I kind of just went to people who were willing to help me. And, um, like I said, there was still a small voice telling me that was possible. And from, you know, looking back, I just felt like I never had a choice. It was either this scholarship or I don't know. I, there was no plan B. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so for you, there was a bit of desperation, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but desperation propelling you to to attempt something that yes. other people, because I, I I can think of countless numbers of people that have grown up in similar circumstances that you did, Crystal, who have heard all of their life hey, you're never going to break the cycle of poverty. You're never going to be able to get out of the ghetto. You're never going to be able to measure up to the person that had a different gender, comes from a different ethnicity, had better uh, upbringing than you did. And they listened to that. Never going to happen to you. That may be for other people, but not for you. And they kept listening to that voice. And they're they're stuck in that same cycle of poverty, whereas you decided, I'm not going to listen to that voice.
0: No. And, and that's why I titled the book. Well, my mom gave me the, the, you know the main title, Crystal Clear, because I'm named after a river, and to me, that means clarity, and I feel like clarity is very, very powerful, and the subtitle, A Journey of Self-Discovery, is important because once you realize who you are, those narratives that people try to place upon you that you're not good enough or that it won't work, you won't believe it because you know who you are, and I believe that we're capable of great things, but it starts with us, and so the the process of discovering self-development, self-empowerment, spiritual growth like all of that ties into anything that you ever want to achieve in life and i've realized that at 23 when i turned around and started my personal development journey because before i was trying to achieve to prove my worth um, but now that i've taken the time to turn around and face inward every goal that i set is so different it feels different because i realized that it's not the goal it's not the achievement of the goal it's the growth and the process of achieving this goal yeah
1: yeah um, I'm thinking about a listener right now who had that guidance counselor, the one that you just described, who was kind of negative and said it's not going to happen for you. And they have that kind of person in their life. And I hope you're hearing from Crystal right now. You don't have to listen to that voice. You can decide that, hey, based on the way that they came up and their circumstances, maybe that's how they see the world, but that's not how I see the world. And I don't have to listen to that voice. I hope everyone that's watching this episode or listening right now is hearing loud and clear from you crystal the way to become unbeatable is to not listen to the voices that tell you you can't it's mm-hmm. to listen to that small voice inside of you that says wait a second maybe I can I don't know without trying and the only way to find out is to try so I'm here it goes I'm gonna go for it
0: yeah. You, is, you really have to challenge those thoughts. Like if someone tells you, what if it doesn't work out, challenge it and just say, well, what if it does? Yeah. Your brain would try to trick you to try to keep you safe, but just tell your brain, like, I'm just going to see something like, it's okay. I'm not yeah. going to, you know, like just say like, what if it does yeah. and then go from there.
1: Instead of that's a great, uh, practical lesson for people. Instead of asking what if it doesn't work out? Why don't you ask the opposite question? What happens if it does work out? I'm thinking right now about you when you applied for a graduate program in an Ivy League school. Oh, I don't know if everybody else caught this, but you are a student in Connecticut. Tell everybody where you go to school.
0: Yale. I got to Yale University.
1: She goes to Yale University. For those of you who don't live in the United States, one of the most prestigious schools in the United States. But when you're putting the application in for a graduate program in Yale University, you you have to be a little bit nervous, right? Even with all of your confidence and all of the accomplishments, tell us what it felt like when you're sending that application in.
0: A little nervous. I was terrified, Jeff. I was terrified if I can put one word on it, (laughs) but I wouldn't have done it if, like I said, I didn't have people in my community pushing me, telling me that it was possible. And knowing that what they were saying was lining up with what was inside of me, that, you know, something was telling me that it was possible, just, you know, take a chance. And I remember the day I, so I was at George Washington university in DC at this Mm -hmm. point, and I was finishing up my MPH. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing place too. Like DC is amazing. And, um, I was finishing up my MPH in epidemiology there and I had a a advisor and this one, like, I love Dr. Magnus so much. She is so amazing. And I thank her constantly for helping me, but I went into her office one day and I was feeling so low. And she said to me, She was like, you know, just asking like as an advisor, like what's going on? And I'm telling her that, you know, I really want to get my PhD, but the places that are doing the research that I want to do are very competitive programs. Uh So I was doing religion and health research and, you know, only a few places, you know, do research in this area. And they were like pretty prestigious schools like Harvard, Yale, um, Hopkins. UCLA, like these are pretty like tough schools, and previously I had got rejected from every single graduate program that I applied to, and so (laughs) I I, I didn't. Right, like I didn't. That's a shot in the
1: arm for your confidence.
0: Oh man, I was crying all the time. Like literally, the fact that I don't cry as much as I used to. (laughs) But I was just always just like you know feeling like rejection hurts, and I understood that. So when I went to her and I told her like you know these programs are very prestigious, and she said one word to me. So. And I kind of stopped and I was just like, did you not hear what I said? I was like, these programs are competitive. My GRE scores are pretty bad because I'm not a good test taker at all. I have below average GRE scores. And the GRE is a test you have to take um, to get into some graduate school programs. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like the ACT, but for graduate school.
1: The graduate record exam or registry exam. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's very like four hours, really intense exam. And I took it one, I took it twice and I told myself that I'm not doing that again. So if I'll never
1: do that to myself again, a third time.
0: No. (laughs) So I was like, these are my scores. This is what I'm going to get. But she, she looked at me and she said, you already have so much going against you. You already have so many people trying to count you out. Don't count yourself out. And it just really hit me like, Oh my God, like I'm not giving myself a chance. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm, At this time, I was coaching students um, on the process of becoming a successful student, and I'm telling my students to believe in yourself, but I wasn't practicing what I was preaching, and I just kind of took that and ran with it, and I gave myself a chance and turned in my application, ended up connecting with faculty because a large part of being successful in higher education is just networking, like with any profession, you have to network. And I met my advisor at an academic conference. He told me to submit my application. He would keep an eye out for it. And he later on told me that, you know, I was, you know, one of the top four applicants. And before I thought I was only admitted because they needed diversity. And I was the black person that they were looking for. Because I I was so, even after being accepted into the program imposter syndrome was there. Yeah. And I was telling myself that I wasn't good enough. And the only reason they admitted me into this program is because of my skin yeah. color or my gender. It's, and so, yeah, it, there was a lot I had to overcome.
1: Even after you got in, it's hard for you to believe that you really deserve to be there until somebody yeah. says, no, you really are that good, right?
0: I, I actually didn't tell anyone for a week that I got in. I felt guilty. I, ha- I had a lot of guilt when I first got the acceptance letter.
1: Yeah tell i i need to send this uh, like a uh, little hashtag after this uh episode tell everybody the name of this advisor that just said to you or the name of this uh you know faculty member that just said so uh what's stopping you why are you why are you listening to the wrong voices why are you counting yourself out what's their name Doctor dr. Who? Magnus. Magnus?
0: dr magnus yeah
1: <laughs> hey Ma- dr magnus if you're out there listening You are awesome. And I just want to say it. Uh, I hope Crystal said it to you, but I want to say it to you also. You're awesome because all of us need to hear from time to time. Everybody else will count you out. Don't count yourself out. Yes. Hey, Crystal, you made a couple of, we were talking last week and you made a couple of really profound statements. And I want people to learn what you said, because one of them really, really impacted me. So you talked about your family's relationship to money and how unhealthy that was. Can you describe what you were telling me about that relationship and how that can carry on if you don't, if somebody doesn't break that cycle?
0: Yeah. So I mentioned it earlier in the interview, but we learn how to navigate through life from our parents. It's called social learning theory. And, um, I realized that my relationship with money was negative when I got older and I always felt like there was never enough, even though I was getting scholarship money and I was getting a stipend. I always felt like I wasn't going to have enough and that it would run out because growing up when I would ask my parents for money, it was I don't have it or we don't have money for that or money doesn't go in trees. I mean. Anything that you oh, can, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure yeah. this is very common, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty sure people hear these types of things, you know, all the time, if they grew up in a state that, or in a condition or living conditions like I did. And so I kind of always felt like money was limited. And when I got older and one of the first books I read was "Thinking and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And that book just expanded my consciousness of what's possible. And it's not just about making money. It's about developing yourself to be the person that you need to be in order to step into that mindset of abundance. Because I truly believe that there are no limited resources. It's the limitation is in our own thinking. And so when I started to read Think and Grow Rich, it kind of led me to books like The Science of Getting Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the big, most impactful books is Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because he actually taught me the difference between an asset and a liability. Mm-hmm. I used to think that having a house, having a car were all assets, but I realized that most of the times they're liabilities because they're taking money out of your pocket. Assets are putting money into your pocket. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to change my relationship with money. Once I learned how money worked and that I realized that money was energy, money is unlimited It's only, like I said, the only limitation is in your, in your thinking.
1: And you cover some of this, uh, that, that, that discovery in your book, crystal clear. Is that right?
0: Yes, I do.
1: I'm glad because many people are listening to this right now, and maybe you have this same kind of unhealthy relationship. You grew up in a family that had unhealthy relationship with money. You inherited that from your parents and you continue to live in this unhealthy relationship with money. Please hear from crystal right now it's about changing the way that you view your relationship to money, the way that you see money. And it may not be about more money or less money in your bank account. Just changing your attitude can make a huge difference. Please hear this from Crystal.
0: Yes. You hit on something very important. My dad always said this attitude is latitude. So how you think about something is going to determine how far you go. And so like I said, like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, a lot of the times it's our own thinking and I wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for knowledge and people always say knowledge is power, but it's not knowledge is potential power. It's the application of that power. You know, that's going to cause the transformation. Imagine if money was your friend and you tell your friend, like, I don't really care about you. Like, I don't love you, but it's cool when you're here. But if you're not, you know, you kind of stress me out, but you know, you're not important to me. You're not that important. Like how would that friend feel if you treated your friend like that?
1: Yeah. So stop (laughs) treating your friends in your pocketbook book like that. Right.
0: Yeah. So I just kind of, you know, it's something I'm still working on because this was something that was, you know, in my subconscious reasoning for a very long time. So it's not going to change overnight. I'm still developing my relationship with money. I'm still reading books that are going to help me kind of break through that barrier, that terror barrier that Bob Proctor talks about, because I realized that, you know, this conditioning is, it's taking some time. I'm still not financially where I want to be, but I know it's there. All the money that's ever going to be, I mean, it's here. It's just it's out here. <laughs> it's just not in my pocket yet. Yeah.
1: So for those of you who are saying, hey, I have been trying to change my relationship with money, but it doesn't feel like I've made much progress. Listen to what Crystal's saying. She's still on the path to making progress. It's okay if you're on the path to making progress. It's not okay if you're not on the path at all, right? Yes. <laughs> um, One of the most powerful things I think I heard you say when we talked last week was... looking for validation from outside. And I really want you to explain this because I feel like many people, in fact, most people probably find themselves there or don't even know that this is what they're doing, but really what they're doing is looking outside for validation. So can you explain to people what you learned about looking for validation from the outside you?
0: Yeah. So the, the first time I became conscious of this, um, type of behavior within myself was when I was in the seventh grade. And I remember there was like a contest going on um, who could have the highest math score in the in the class. And I remember I won. And I remember the response from the people in my in my class. And they were like, oh, I didn't know she was smart. And people started to notice me. And so I kind of was just like, okay, well maybe I can use this to get attention. And this is when the, a year after my father passed, not even a full year, because he passed away and I was in the sixth grade and this was the seventh. And I remember thinking, Okay, like maybe this will be an opportunity for me to feel accepted and loved and wanted when I go home. I don't feel that way at all because it's so different. And so I kind of like went to school and became this overachiever to prove my worth and to get people to look at me and to accept me for who I am. And it kind of became very negative once I got into college and I was getting degree after degree and I wasn't happy. And I remember when I got my first master's at 23 and I told myself, okay, when I get my degree, I'll be happy. I got my degree. I walked across the stage and I was absolutely miserable. And that's when I realized that I had, I was facing the wrong direction that any type of validation wasn't going to come from outside of me. It all started with inner peace and inner awareness and, that's when my goal started to feel sweeter because I wasn't focused on the end result. I was focused on who I needed to become to achieve this goal.
1: So I'm thinking right now of the guy who is a workaholic and trying hard to climb the corporate ladder and is doing a great job and getting a lot of praise along the way. I'm thinking about the gal who has the 4.1 GPA like you did. I didn't even know that was a thing until today, but they're (laughs) working themselves to death for that 4.1 GPA, because every time they get good grades, people say good things about them. And I really want them to hear from you about the dangers of looking towards achievement and other people's applause as a form of self-validation, because this is so tempting. It's so prevalent. I think many people are right here, where we're talking about right now, And maybe they're hearing it for the first time and realizing, uh uh-oh, she's describing me to a T right now. (laughs) How do I get out of that vicious cycle of looking for achievement and outside me for validation?
0: Wow. So the first question I would ask is why are you doing it it all starts with awareness so first you know if you don't know you're doing it then you're never going to take the second step which is figuring out how to change it so figure out you know if is this something like really do a self-evaluation and figure out is this something I'm actually doing are the goals I'm setting for me or are the goals I'm setting um to prove myself to other people and it makes a huge difference because the type of energy the type of intention that you put towards your goals feels different for you And when you're setting goals to prove yourself, you realize very quickly and very hard, like I did, that you're not going to be happy. In fact, it makes you even more miserable because you're spending energy and time doing something that doesn't even make you happy. And even though education was something that I was very passionate about, I was using it to prove myself and to get validation. So it was be quickly becoming this negative thing. And when I turned around, like I said, it all starts with awareness. It starts with self-discovery. And so you have to figure out first, am I doing this? And secondly, what type of tools do I need in order to make this something that is going to feel more fulfilling if this is really what I want, but you are the only person who knows what you want. So stop telling people, stop letting people tell you who you should be and what you should do.
1: It's crazy how (laughs) subtle this is, but it's also crazy how dangerous this is. I'm thinking specifically of that person. What you're hearing from Crystal is don't end up like her walking across the stage, getting your master's degree, sitting down after receiving the degree and being totally miserable because what you were really doing is what other people wanted you to do and achieve what other people wanted you to achieve instead of what your real vision for yourself was. Don't do that to yourself. Learn from Crystal's story. Crystal, you have a book out there. Um, Honestly, you didn't have to write this book, but you did. And I want you to tell people what prompted you to write the book, Crystal Clear, subtitled A Journey of Self-Discovery, because the book is already doing well. In fact, I want uh, the listeners to go out and pick up a copy of the book, tell everybody where they can get it, but first tell them why you set out to write this book.
0: Yeah so the main reason is because of my mom. She kept telling my mom's a writer and so she kept telling me, "Babe, write a book, write a book." And she said, "You have so much to say and you never do and that's why you suffer with so much anxiety." Because I did I didn't talk about my story and when someone would see, you know, I was getting all these degrees and and a student would reach out to me from my old high school. And they would say, Oh, you're so lucky. It looks so easy. And it would really make me upset because I'm like, this is not easy. What's wrong
1: (laughs) with you. I had to work my tail off to do this.
0: Right. But I wasn't talking about it. I was just going along, making it seem like everything was perfect. You know, your typical social yeah, media, you know, yeah. false reality type thing. And so my mom said, "Write a book, name it Crystal Clear, and it'll do well." And so she I wait a second. Did,
1: she I, said all three of those things: write a yeah, book. Here's the title, and it's going to do well. She said those I things. Swear. Holy smokes!
0: Yes. <laughs> Yes, my mom is. She, like I said, my my parents never went to college. But when I say my mom has been that rock yeah. that I needed on this journey, yeah. I could not have done this without her. Like without her praying with me, just going along this journey with me, I could not have done it. And so I kind of took that and I started, Jeff, and then I stopped. Like in so many authors, because it's burdens, hard,
1: right? <laughs> it's writing a so book hard. is hard.
0: It's so hard. It is so difficult. And it wasn't until I met Les Brown last year and I joined his Power Voice Summit and. They kind of, like, randomly they'll choose people to speak to him. Mm-hmm. And one day I got chosen on December 16th, 2020, and the first thing out of his mouth after I told him my story, we only had three minutes to tell him our story. Wow. And I I, I got everything I could in, in three minutes, and the first thing out of his mouth was, do you have a book? And I was, like, you know, stumbling over my words. I was, like, oh, well, no, like, I <laughs> – So I finally decided I was going to write it. One day I got an email. I think it was the next day, maybe from self-publishing school. And they were teaching authors how to write and publish books. Um, And so I joined the course. It was a huge investment, but I knew that I can't expect people as a coach. I can't expect people to invest in my products. If I'm not willing to invest in someone invest in myself and invest in someone else's, you know, services, coaching services. So I joined self-publishing school. It was a guaranteed bestseller. I did exactly what they told me to do. You just and followed the books, footprint, yeah, right? I followed the, I followed everything they told me. And in March, 2021, so March of this year, it reached number one bestseller in two categories on Amazon. And I looked yesterday and it sold 374 copies. And this was a book that I was terrified to bring forth because I didn't think I could. And I think, didn't think anyone would care, you know?
1: So I hope at the end of this episode on uh, the day after Black Friday, basically the day after Thanksgiving, you go out and buy a copy of Crystal Clear, Crystal Harrell's book, um, and learn more about her journey of self-discovery. Crystal, I want to wrap this episode up by just asking you to speak directly to somebody who's kind of find them, found themselves in the circumstances that you are in. The deck is stacked against them. Everybody is telling them that it's never going to happen for you. It may happen for other people, but you're never going to achieve those dreams and they really do wanna become unbeatable and not let their circumstances overcome them. So can you give them just a final piece of advice on if they find themselves where you found yourself in government housing and losing a father and the, the deck was stacked against you, give somebody a piece of advice, would you?
0: Yeah, so the greatest thing that I could tell someone is first, get steel, get steel and I want you to fantasize. I want you to daydream. I want you to think about what it is that you want out of life. What do you want your life to look like? After you've done that, don't listen to, like I said, all the negative, the outside chatter telling you that it's impossible. Just allow yourself to think freely. This is something that we do naturally as children, but along the way, we become socialized and we lose that, but it can be cultivated again, but you have to get still and you have to think about what do I want out of life? If I could move forward in life, and I couldn't fail, what would I want my life to look like? Take that vision that you have for your life and take the first step. You don't have to see the whole staircase, just take the first step and always, always, always figure out who you need to be in order to become the person that you see in your vision. And this is going to start through self-discovery.
1: Great advice. Just take the first step. You don't have to know the whole path, just take the first step. Hey, this Thanksgiving, um, Crystal, you've had a lot of hard knocks in life, um, but you've also had some things to be thankful for. I've gone through some hard knocks, and every listener has gone through some hard knocks, but you also have some things to be thankful for. So you have a choice this Thanksgiving. You can dwell on all of the negative and all of the difficulties, or you can spend a few moments just being thankful for some of the good that's happened in your life. And Crystal, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode with you today is because every possible strike was against you, and yet you went from government housing to the Ivy League, and you got a lot to be thankful for. I want to say thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast, on this special episode, this Thanksgiving Day episode of Unbeatable.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff. I I feel... Like your energy is so just authentic. And like I said, meeting you has been the highlight of 2021. Because oh, that's I love so
1: nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to tell you, you're so awesome. This podcast has been easy. This episode has been easy. So thanks. I hope you have a great time with your family celebrating Thanksgiving weekend.
0: Thank you. You do the same. This is a very special holiday. And it's cool that we share that this yeah. is our favorite holiday. Yeah.
1: All right. We'll see you later, Crystal. Hey, you just heard some great advice. Have a vision for your own future. Don't buy into somebody else's vision for your future. But maybe the best advice that you've heard from Crystal today is don't count yourself out. Don't become your own worst pretty. Hey, I wanna just say thank you for joining us for this special Thanksgiving episode of Unbeatable. If you're tuning in and catching this broadcast for the first time, did you know that you can Find us, follow us on social media. We're pretty much everywhere. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And by the way, I'm building an army, literally, an unbeatable army. It's an email list of just communicating with you, what's coming up, and hearing more about the episode that you just listened to. If you want to become part of this email list, just sign up at unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for taking some time out and being with me today. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving and an awesome holiday season. See you right back here next week.